The first reading is Luke chapter 2, reading verses 25 to 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous, devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thanks be to God for his word. Joel, chapter 2, reading verses 27 and 28. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people should never again be put to shame. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you again for your wonderful invitation and for taking such good care of me. Um, 
since I've come a ways, I hope that you're comfortable and you want to sit here for a while. <laughs> so I'm drawn to the text that we're going to look at today because I did a series of writings that combined Christmas with some cultural practices in the U.S. And um, so today we're going to look a bit at epiphany in what I hope will be a new and exciting way. The Christmas story overflows with formidable female exemplars whose creative faith accelerates the gospel narrative. The Virgin Mary and her kinswoman Elizabeth are featured prominently. However, less attention focuses on Anna, an elder woman prophet who encountered the newborn Jesus when he was brought for consecration at the temple. Now, just um, so you will understand with the longer readings that you got, initially I was going to say something about Simon, but then I timed my sermon, so Simon had to go. I'm sorry, Simeon, not you. <laughs> right, so, um, so we're going to be focusing on Anna and the sermon title that we're going to be using is The Prophet Pierces the Silence. The Prophet Pierces the Silence. So what can we learn from Anna as an exemplar of prophetic creativity? And while the canonical gospel narratives contain sparse biographical details about her, traditions outside of the biblical text envision a more elaborate life story. You're going to like this. Some scholars suggest she could be the daughter of Phanuel, mentioned in the apocryphal accounts. And since the spelling is similar to Anna's parent given in the Bible text, it's reasonable to assume that they're talking about the same person. Um, we are familiar with what apocryphal means. You're a very educated congregation here. Right, because the apocryphal texts are just the ones that were in the Bible at one point, but they were taken out for various reasons. Um, I was going into those reasons, but you'll see they're down in my footnotes because, again, I timed my sermon. So uh, just as a brief overview of the apocryphal books, one of the reasons why they are said to be taken out is that maybe they can't confirm that the person who wrote a particular book was really a prophet of God. Maybe they don't know who wrote that particular book. So there are some that are taken out. Now, in the apocryphal literature and also in Islamic traditions, they identify Anna as the mother of the Virgin Mary rendering her the grandmother of Jesus. How many of you have ever heard that one before? I know, so exciting. So, and Catholic tradition reveres her as a patron saint of, among other things, unmarried women, women who want to become pregnant, mothers, grandmothers, and educators basically about 75% of the church. So the background of how Anna is seen through various lenses gives us some insight into who she could be. And other faith traditions interact with her legacy in a way that I think is helpful for us to know. However, our focus today rests squarely on how the scriptural text itself illuminates Anna as moral exemplar.
Anna's candid depiction as a marginalized elder widow heightens the gospel account of her courageous speech and her subversiveness. There is sufficient cause to celebrate this aged servant based solely on her scriptural presentation as a solitary mystic seer. The infant Messiah was just, had just been dedicated at the temple when this lone elderly alkalite emerges. The text states that she began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Exactly what does it mean to be an elder? I, I fear rushing over that word robs us of something. Now, in the American South, it's very rare for young people to reference their parents' age group by their first name. They're your elders, right? Children do not talk to grown-ups by their first name, ever. And I don't know if you all have seen this show on Netflix, but there's a show called Sweet Magnolias. And there's a couple of instances where one of the young adult men is talking to a man, he calls him Mr. Skeeter, and he says to him, now I told you, just call me Skeeter. And the young man says, well, sir, my mama won't allow that. And that's a cultural thing. But with an African-American culture, it's pretty similar. My mother still would be upset if I called her friends by their first name. Because there's this notion that our elders have something to teach us, that they are not the same as us, that we rob ourselves if we can't learn from them. So we don't talk to them like they are in our peer group when they're actually not. And I think that's important because Anna is highlighted here as an elder. And so I don't think that that was always the case, but in a lot of our cultures, elders are treated with a tremendous amount of respect. And so Anna is here, and her wisdom is acquired in part because she spends her days fasting and praying in the temple. She improvises a space for herself as a seer and holy interpreter. So in addition to her age, her gender is a fact that makes her stand apart. She demonstrates a female spiritual authority in a male-governed religious domain. Her prophetic tongue pierces the familiar Christian story, decoding present circumstances through divine revelation. Rather than a male priest or a cleric, God is using this elderly woman to vocalize and affirm the status of Jesus as the promised one. There is a conspicuous lack of religious male leaders' responses to Jesus. Now you all do remember we just talked about Simeon a moment ago, but both Simeon and Anna represent people who are outside of the traditional leadership, and that's the point I'm trying to make here. There's a traditional way of understanding religious leadership. And silencing diverse voices breeds delusion of knowledge. True wisdom awakens through welcoming counterpoints. Her piercing eloquence pronounces the baby's sacred identity as she prophesies the salvation he will catalyze. 
she follows in the footsteps of matriarchs like Miriam. Everyone remember who Miriam is? Yes, right, the, the prophetic sister of Moses. Deborah, everyone knows Deborah. Uh-oh, got a little quieter there. One of the judges of Israel. So she stands with them. And she deciphers present upheaval through divine insight. I was really going to talk about that divine upheaval, especially with what Simeon said. But maybe that'll be part two for the sermon. And so while Elizabeth and Mary have a camaraderie through the births that they will have to bring forward, Anna stands as one who is isolated and alone. It's just Anna with God in the temple, day after day, praying, worshiping, and waiting. So now I've defined a few things for us by exploring a bit more about who Anna is or was, understanding her role in the epiphany and recognizing the importance she has as a spiritual leader. This is to help us set the stage for the fresh new insights we can receive from Anna, who's not stymied by the traditions of those around her. If we are seeking, there are, I'm sorry, there are times when we see God's redemption that is thwarted through behaviors which render us silent in the midst of God's transformative power. And when this occurs, Anna teaches us three things. One, to remain in God's presence. Two, to gratefully acknowledge and praise God for God's work. And three, to move forward to share the good news with all who seek God's redemption or deliverance. The first point, Anna remained in God's presence as the temple is where God's presence is seen to be. Many of you know that the unjust social orders created extreme vulnerability for widows. These women's souls were filled with deep loss and longing. So that's our first insight. She stays in the presence of God, which provides her with the ability to transform her circumstances. From the fissures of trauma and grief, she creates purpose for herself. She writes herself into biblical history by converting life's shards into substance. Now, women have used high-pressure situations to nurture an improvisational genius. For example, African-American women have a powerful legacy of creating value out of life's scraps. Our foremothers took the scraps from the slaveholders' table to create what people now call soul food, which is a delicacy to some. Many of you all call it Southern cooking. Uh, I don't know what you all mean by that. Uh, best I can tell, somebody heard it in America, and so they started saying it here. <laughs> but for us, those phrases have meaning because it represents how to make something out of nothing. It's about substance that comes out of the scraps of life. And it's a strength that we can associate with someone like a widow and someone like Anna. An improvisational genius is the genius of those whose constant faith in God allows them to improvise from whatever they have. It's what allowed black folks in the American South to take pieces of the hog that the slaveholders didn't want 
and create tasty dishes. Between you and me, I don't eat all of those things. But it's well received by others. Improvisational genius is to come to a new world where your language is destroyed and then create new approaches to language with words, rhythms, and meanings laced between the traditional approaches to syntax. Improvisational genius is to hear the classical music which prioritizes the major keys, but it slips between the major and the minor keys. It bounces rhythms off of one another, creating order from what would otherwise have been considered chaos. For this prophetic woman, improvisational genius is not only heard and seen, it's felt and the drenching warmth and love of a God who continues to pour out God's spirit on all flesh with sons and daughters who prophesy. How does one acquire such genius? By staying in the presence of God. It's in the pouring out of God's spirit that we theologians call uh, kenosis that provides us with the ability to pour out God's indwelling spirit within us. God pours out God's spirit onto Anna, and in turn, she pours out her gifts, her celebratory insights to anybody who would listen. Now, this means a lot of things to a lot of people. For my grandmother, she was nearly always in a state of prayer. And if she got tired of praying, she'd be singing. You could hear her early in the morning. And you knew it was prayer because it didn't sound like that. It sounded more like this. And it would go from that and then she'd be washing dishes and she'd tilt her head to the side as she's washing her dishes. And and then, when, then it would merge in a song. I will not grow tired, oh Lord. She'd shake her head and she'd do something else. And it was that which allowed her to stay in the presence of God. Now, culturally, it may come across in a different way, but some of you all know what it means to stay in God's presence. Some of you have seen yourself or other people you know who just are constantly before God. And it allows you to take what you've got, no matter how it looks, and turn it into something else, which is what Anna was doing. So this prophet, she pierces the silence by staying in God's presence. She doesn't just pray, though. She listens to God. And apparently, she hears God telling her who Jesus is. And that's the second thing. She pierces the silence of traditional religious leaders by speaking out. She does it with gratitude and with praise. I used to go to a church that was Presbyterian. I'm not Presbyterian. But it was the only church that sounded okay because there was no Baptist church where I was. And they seemed kind of nice. They called themselves the Frozen Chosen. Even though you don't know me very well, you might imagine I kind of stood out. I did. And people would see me, and so I don't know about you, but when I was in church, people would sing a song and then somebody would get excited and they might stand up or raise their hands or whatever, and others would feel, yes, that's right, and they would join in with them and it would kind of, the energy would kind of move up in the church. You know what this church people, you know what they told me in this church? 
We love to watch you. So praise does have a certain amount of energy, though. And this woman didn't just make noise. She was listening because she was able to hear God say who Jesus was. It allowed her to pierce the silence because God pierced her reality. Now, she's speaking courageously, and she moves from silence to speech in a way that's very, very helpful. It made me think of um, a not-too-distant history. There's an African-American woman named Maria Stewart. Most of you probably haven't heard of her. She was born in 1803. She's regarded as one of the very first women to speak in public. And she's widely regarded as the first black American woman to publish a political manifesto. Now, the radicality of her speaking, not only is it because she threatened the livelihoods of southern planters by telling the enslaved they should walk away from the slave plantation, but I don't know if you all know this, but it was illegal for women to speak in public at one time. I don't know what they would have done with me. And it was the belief that women's voices were too sultry. I know. Do I sound sultry? Of course not. But I mean, that was the thing. Women were seen to be sultry. Um, and yet, it's not just what women sound like, it's what they say. Because when you've been quiet a long time, when you finally speak, you've got some words to give to people, don't you? Because you've been quiet, you've been watching, everybody else has been talking, but you've just been watching. So when it's your turn to speak, you have a lot to say. Anna's prophetic speech silences, uh, shatters the expectations which dictate female submission and invisibility. And for holy imagination springs not from just the isolated individuals, but from choruses of witnesses spanning human history. There's a third thing that we learned from Anna. She shares the good news with all who will listen. Now, I specialize in what's called womanist theology, which deals with African-descended women and sort of writing them back into histories where they've been written out. Um, Anna represents a communal resistance as an elder and a matriarch, and I found that really resonated with me, which I hope it does with many of you. She recalls the promises of God, and that's a dangerous memory. Heeding such dangerous memory proves demanding and emotional labor. Think of times when you've been tempted to withhold your wisdom. Anna sees the epiphanic light of Jesus, for the epiphany is the enfleshed promise of God. You will remember, of course, John's gospel, which states, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14 says, the word became, thank you, and dwelled among, I was worried about them for a moment, they got a little quiet. It became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is God's enfleshed promise. And this epithemic light pierces the instability of our world, revealing relief even where justice remains yet eclipsed. We are never alone. Jesus is yet Emmanuel, God with us. The withness of God 
is demonstrated through moral exemplars like Anna. Her prophetic sight evolves not through privilege, but through wrestling with lack. Renewed sight emerges on the underside through improvisation, resilience, and a holy stubbornness that refuses to relent to silence. You see, you can go home today and talk to your spouse and they'll say, why won't you do that? And you say, I got a holy stubbornness. As I bring us to a close, let us consider for a few moments the way that Anna awakens recognition and gratitude for the elder women in our midst. She represents women whose wisdom and endurance continuously undergird flourishing movements today. Women like Anna broke silence to clear space for generations to speak. In the US, we have a campaign that says, Say Her Name. And it foregrounds many of the stories extinguished through racialized brutality and violence. Anna inspires communal attentiveness to prophetic voices, still speaking dangerous truth to power. What creative resistance do overlooked women around us embody? Renowned scholar Kane Hope Felder emphasize the need to radically question and disable hierarchies that privilege certain voices and experiences over others. Which voices are marginalized by forms of difference today? How might contemporary faith spur such prophetic questioning of barriers around race, gender, class, orientation, and ability that inhibit full human thriving. Prophetic creativity demands probing where creativity is crushed rather than nurtured due to unjust systems. Anna models tenacious creativity despite improbability. Her holy improvisation offers an advent summons to reimagine realities presumed impossibilities. May our communities nurture more fearless prophets through every loss and silence, speaking bold anthems and liturgies into beloved community. Amen. Loving God, on this Epiphany Sunday, we remember three Gentiles who saw the star, trusted its message, and traveled far to pay homage to the one born King of the Jews. We remember their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As the gift of gold is said to symbolize power and authority, we pray for our rulers and those with authority. May they seek justice, equity, serving the people they lead rather than, the <coughs> rather than hoarding power and wealth to themselves. We pray that Christ may be their example. 
in this year of elections around the world, we pray for freedom of expression, breadth of representation, and where needed, the peaceful transfer of power. May the debates be about policies rather than attacks on opponents. Loving God of peace, where rulers seek to strengthen their hold on power through war and conflict, we ask for your light and your peace. And we take a moment to lift to God, Lord, the, the many global conflicts that we are aware of. Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, Myanmar, Yemen, so many locations in Africa. Lord, may the light of your peace shine in those areas. As the gift of frankincense shows your spiritual authority, we lift to you our religious lives. Those who head large communions or the individuals whose examples inspire us. May we continue to welcome and include minorities that others seek to reject from your kingdom. In particular, we want to raise to you those that we know of that minister to the peoples of Gaza and the West Bank. Thinking particularly of the Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac and his congregation in Bethlehem, who many here have been privileged to join in worship. And of others we know of, or don't know, who are ministering in conflicts. We pray for your blessing guidance and protection for them. And finally, we come to the gift of myrrh, the perfume of burial, and that symbol of sacrifice that was to come. We look back on those who have suffered and who are bereaved or mourning at the moment, and we pray for your comfort to those that are our mourning, the loss of friends, loved ones, inspiration, or even just hope. Loving God, we rejoice in the gift of grace given through that sacrifice at the cross. As we seek to follow you, may we go out with confidence in the love and shelter you provide. May we lift within this congregation those voices of the minorities that would normally be silenced, those with long years of experience and knowledge and wisdom so often ignored for some other minor characteristic. We lift this congregation and its needs to you. From those whose health is failing, those whose finances are limited and whose housing 
is uncertain. May we bring our individual needs to you in the knowledge of your love and provision. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.